0: Dr. Frank O'Connor, thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate spending time with you
1: thanks connor thanks for the invitation i'm looking forward
0: to our conversation so first question where are you from where did you grow up
1: yeah i grew up in the cork kerry border a place called kish game so it's basically on the cork side of the border my mom was from kerry my dad was from cork and they settled on the border and uh, great part a uh, very rural still very rural uh, hasn't changed much over the decades and i grew up i suppose looking back to be honest connor in quite an idyllic environment uh i had a uh, an environment i suppose where we had grew our own food we walked cycles uh we um sort of repaired our clothes and had a such a strong community and um, we had freedom to roam and i suppose i was one of those kids uh with my brother and my friends who literally walked everywhere the fields explored the river we we're always making boats and in the snow and the winter making sleighs so it was a real i suppose looking back and an idyllic lifestyle and uh, obviously very much didn't travel that f- much over that period but definitely got a very strong community background like my my parents are huge into community my dad who died recently he was an major community man and his grandfather before him as well so i kind of grew up with this appreciation of community and and people sort of supporting each other, but also appreciation of, I suppose, what a wonderful environment we had back then, you know. Mm. And also, from a very early age, I took a really strong interest in uh, materials from a perspective of, I became, um, I suppose, quite a minimalist, quite young in my life, you know. I suppose I got an interest in secondhand stuff very, very early on and didn't really buy, buy new. So, um, yeah, so really, I mean, I look back now, with idyllic, really, I just was... Might have, might have a bit of a tin, uh, tin, uh, tinted glasses, I suppose, looking back on it, but I loved it, really. And it really framed a lot of my life from there on, you know.
0: Do you think we're losing that a- access to that idyllic lifestyle? Do you think? Uh,
1: I suppose I have to look at my, like, I don't have any kids, uh, but I look at my nieces and nephews who I've, suppose, g- got good relationships with over the years, even though I was away for a long time, so I actually missed a lot of their childhoods, but... Uh, yeah, I think we are. I mean, I think they're what they grew up into and what I grew up in is very different. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, like we literally knew every blade of grass, every ditch, every boarded up house we'd get into. Like we were literally exploring everything all the time. I mean, we'd leave the house in the morning. Mom would we'd have breakfast. We'd leave seven or eight, or nine o'clock. My, step and my brother pick up a friend or two on the way walking and we'd literally get back in late that evening. And sometimes we'd have to, to be honest, sneak back in at times because our clothes would get all drenched, we'd have fallen through the river, whatever. So, yeah, I think it's just very different. I mean, no technology has changed that. I think fear as well, there's been a fear mm. culture created over the years. But, uh, yeah, I suppose the only realizing as I get older and i in my 50s now that, yeah, it has changed a lot. And I suppose I feel very fortunate that I had that freedom. And I suppose it really, like I said, helped me to build a very strong understanding of you know even though i grew up in rural ireland in a quite a small location oh the, the bigger picture you know i suppose mm. i've taken that interest i mean i've taken that interest i'm still an explorer i mean i'm on my 50s i still act like a, a kid i'm always exploring still I've, i still have like a good friend of mine in the uk uh, he was an extra neighbor at the time and he uh, he it was not too long before he died sadly but said to me at the time he said never lose your sense of wonder and i think that's something that i've taken with me i'm always interested and i've taken i suppose my interest in exploring in the countryside into urban environments and that's been my life now really is where i i go to cities and towns and villages and i explore everywhere Mm. i'm just fascinated because i'm fascinated by by people and i'm fascinated by community and i'm fascinated by by the fact that we have a find out resources on our planet and we really are creating systems that don't work. And I'm convinced that we can basically break down current systems and build new ones that are much better for everyone. And I suppose that's been my life is always seeking solutions, you know, looking at where I can apply my skills and knowledge and particularly my passion and interest. Because when I get interested in something, I get interested in something. No, I'm kind of person that's kind of, um, yeah. So I'm would be, I'm hyper. So, mm. like a lot of people would say, I'm ADHD. I've done like basic tests, and I am definitely ADHD. So I, I'm hyper. But so very, I would have struggled in school with concentration. So like I went through the school system only because my mom was a primary teacher, and she kept now uh, uh, I suppose an eye on me and kept me sort of I suppose on the straight and narrow. Like I went mm. to school when I was three years of age. Wow. Um, and I finished uh, school. I was I was suspended in my leaving cert. Uh, at the age of 16. Now, I I actually went back and did my legal cert and ended up going to university. But I was very young. The only reason I went to school so young, not that I was really bright or anything, it was just that my mom was a primary teacher. I was the youngest and I seemingly cried every day until they left me go to school. Mm. So I wanted to go to school and it became easier for my parents to allow that. So then when I went through the system, the idea was that I would stay back. But eventually I went to university at the age of 16. So I was a child of university, really, my first year particularly. But like for me, I suppose it's always been interesting stuff, but obviously for me it has to be very much values, passion. I suppose I'm one of those people that believe that you can change the world. I mean, that's just it. Like I've always believed I can change the world or we can change the world together, and my life reflects that. And so my work has taken me all over the world. I mean, I've worked in over 30 countries more, I would say, and I've always gone with that kind of belief that people have the power to change things we just need to tap into that and use our skills and knowledge and obviously for me things like integrity are fundamental to what I do and also things like empathy and trust as well so so for me it's kind of like how can I help and also if I can get interested in something so I could go through 50 different subjects and I pick on something then and then you won't see me for a while because I'm going to just go so deep into that and I suppose that's what's happened with my career, really over the years, I've just gone and really deep into subjects, become expert globally on it, mm. and then I eventually I'll probably go. I want to do something else, and so I do tend to shift around a bit. But they're always the same basis. It's always values driven. It's always about making the, the world a better place for everyone. It's always about social justice, equality, sustainability. They're all they're consistent themes, but how I approach it will be different.
0: There's a, I mean, there's a conflict and there's an argument around idealism versus pragmatism. Mm. Right. What what would your perspective be there? You had an idealistic what would this sounds like an idealistic it's steeped in nature childhood and, and community. Um, but pragmatism also is very, very we've got to be pr- pragmatic as a society. What would your what would your perspective? Yeah, be? no,
1: that's a good point. And look, I suppose the pragmatism would have come a lot from my family and stuff, you know. Mm. I mean I am the one who's the I'm the outlier in my family, you know, I'm the one who sort of stepped out of the norms and started challenging things from a very young age, you know, so wherever I went, I said, so, and I can see, you know, there's a balance required all the time. You need people like me to be idealistic, to to be pushing the boundaries, to do things differently, but you also need people to kind of come in and go, okay, we can only go so far at this stage. So Mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's always been a balance. I just have felt comfortable from the start, I think fairly early on, particularly when I found a bit more of who I was, which kind of happened a bit in school to a certain extent because I tended to stand up and be who I wanted to be and obviously got into trouble a lot. But also it happened in university where I kind of stood out from everyone else for a while. And again, it happened when I won my first job in industry. So I kind of realized over time that I was happy to be the outsider. Mm. Like, And it's not like... You know, I didn't have friends and stuff, but I was usually the person who was trying something differently. Like I would have become vegetarian in Ireland back in the '90s, mm. where like no one was vegetarian. Uh, no one was vegetarian, and so everyone thought you were crazy. Like uh, you know, I was the one who shaved my head when no one else shaved their head. I was the one who did all these sort of things that you know sort of dressed differently. I, I suppose I was just trying to find out who I was, but also. I kind of wanted to maybe shock people a bit as well, but also really a lot of it was for me to find out who I was and what I was about. And I suppose I did. While it was idyllic, my my growing up, it was very conservative. You know, mm. you know, like you know, it was a typical Irish background. You grow up in a Catholic environment. You know, strong community, and uh, and we we didn't have a lot. I mean, you know, I know we all said as we get older we grew up and of, but we didn't. No, my parents mm. didn't have much. That was the reality. They didn't have an awful lot, but we were never short of ever anything. You know. And I think the community provided so much. So like when I've gone forward in my work, I've always tried to understand what the community means for that. And you're right, that kind of you have your idealism, your pragmatism, you know, this, this you you know, you have your realists and stuff. But like for me, it's about like I mean, it is about working together, but also I suppose I have realized as my career's gone on that you I think you need people like me who are willing to kind of step out, who are actually aren't always very popular I've been very unpopular at various stages with lots of people you know but I can see myself the impact that's had mm. you know you have to take people out of the comfort zone and um, you know I'm actually a very quiet person yet sometimes people see me as being very provocative very outspoken but actually if you met me on a day-to-day basis I'm actually just a quite normal person but I suppose I'm driven by this desire and passion to make the world better and I get so upset and frustrated when I see inequality and social injustice. When I see people struggling on the streets, it upsets me no end. At the weekend now, Jude, uh, my partner Jude, and I went into uh, meet with some direct provision centre um, some some people in the the residents uh, in Cork over the weekend to try and help with a few issues. And that really upsets me to see a lot of those being traumatised by a system that's inhumane. Mm. They're being institutionalised, and not, so for me, you know, I just I just I can't stand that. And and I. Like, I suppose that comes very much from my parents. Like, my dad also was, a, he, he kept his community stuff on a local level. So my dad never really moved that much from a 15-mile radius. But everyone, everyone knew my dad. Because when I grew up, like, my dad used to go, during the week, right, my dad, like, he's trying to make his go as a business, as, as a builder. But he'd spend quite a few nights every week going around to elderly people in the local community. And i go with him. He'd be making, he'd be giving him cups of tea. He'd be shaving the elderly man. He'd be doing whatever, repairing it. You know, and that's what I grew up with you help people who need that help. And uh, and like before that, his dad as well. So his dad had set up the local JA, uh, he'd set up the local uh, cooperatives. He'd been in flying columns. My grandfather was in the flying columns back in the day. So you can see I grew up with this really strong sense of identity, community and stuff. And I suppose that's come with me. But what I've done is I've taken what I've learned from my parents and I've learned from my grandparents, even though I never, never met my granddad. I mean, he's kind of one of my idols, but I've taken what I can from hearing stories about those and said, OK, mine's more of a world stage. You know, I'm not going to do it locally. I, I had to go away from home. I mean, mm. I, I didn't realize the time, but I really needed to go away. And that's why I moved away in 1995. But, you know, I also took with me those things and said, OK, what can I do around design as it happens? My chosen career on sustainability, around a certain economy. What can I do? to make a contribution like my dad and mom made and my grandparents made as well. What is that contribution? And that's where I've been seeking and that's where I suppose my life has taken me, like I said, literally all over the world, meeting all kinds of people, working on all kinds of projects, but always fundamentally, can I help? And if I can't help, okay, I'm I'm not going to waste my time. I'm the kind of person who'll say, I'm not the right person, you know? And I suppose for me, what makes me unusual in my career as well is that um, it's not necessarily... I'm not advising people to go this direction, but I've never been into money. Never. I mean, so from a young age, uh, right through to now. So a career like mine, in theory, you should be making a lot of money. But I actually never wanted to make money. What I wanted to do, idealistically, was change the world. That's what I wanted.
0: Would you, um, is there a sense of anti-capitalism there? There is definitely. But like, it just look, to me...
1: The current system of capitalism doesn't work. You know, we rely on the market to me and I've argued this for years. I mean, I've worked, like I said, on policy development. I've been working on policy with governments all over the world for over 20 years. And so and I've been advisors to ministers and I've met with heads of state. So like, I've been there at the top arguing from a kind of idealistic perspective what we can change stuff. It doesn't work for so many people. So, yes. There is an anti-capitalist stuff there. You know, I'm not saying that we have to change every aspect of it. But I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the work of David Graeber. I don't know if you know heard of David Graeber. He was one of like people I really respected. I basically came across his work back in about. I suppose 2010 or 11, I can't remember exactly. And the first time I heard him speak, I was like, wow, that's it. He spoke about a term called bullshit jobs. And uh,
0: that was one of his kind of, I, suppose, I think methods. I saw an article about that. Yeah, yeah, really, really, yeah. really
1: interesting. But I could relate to when I when I heard him speak about bunch of Jobs, I was like, OK, I know where this is. I've been working out with governments and academias and NGOs and all these for quite a while at that stage. It's like, yeah. And I think for me, he, he always makes the point and not just him. I mean, a lot of the readings and stuff that I would have been influenced were, were the 60s and 70s. You know, so there's a lot of reinvention of the wheel in my career since I started out in the '80s to where we are now. The mm. wheel keeps being reinvented. Now, David Graeber talks a lot about we built the current system, mm. we can unbuild it, and we can build a new system again. Sally, David died a couple of years ago during the COVID years, but basically, so and I think the same. Look, there'll be elements that we take on again. You mm. know, we obviously need medicine to survive, and we need environments. So there's a lot of good things that have come out. But why have we lost so many people in the way? If you look at Ireland as as a kind of a micro view in terms of globally, we have four or five people who have basically most of the wealth in Ireland, Mm. you know, and people can say well done to all those people and they've done walk hard and stuff. But I don't think it's quite that straightforward. And I think for me, you know yeah there's the idealism coming true but no capitalism doesn't work i've argued for 20 years now i've written on a policy level i produce policy papers for government stuff it's always been it's a systems failure we can't just rely on the market we need to have different strategies and you can apply that straight away when you look at things like housing in ireland if the market is so successful why are so many people struggling and that's just one example so yeah so for me we do need a new type of, uh, of way of working. And yes, that requires a global change. And I suppose um, we, we're, we're a long way from that at the moment. And I suppose we see at the moment only, we see it with our climate crisis. We can't ignore that anymore. We see it with our resource crisis. You know, that's where I started. I, in 1989, I was a, probably the first person in Ireland to write about this. I wrote about it in my thesis and my degree that we needed to have a closed loop circular economy. So mm. when I wrote that, I was, look, I was 20 years of age, you know, and I didn't, I mean, like I was naive. I didn't know what I was writing, really. All I knew that I'd spend, okay, so go back to me. I was, so I struggled in college. I got on grand, but I really wasn't that majorly enthused. And then in 1988, I was supposed to come up with a final year project. And I just couldn't, I couldn't be, like, I was like, why should I design and make something? We already have what we need and couldn't really get into it. Everyone's in my class, they knew exactly what they wanted to do. I was the outlier. So the, the, the university said, can you speak to a different department? There's a chemistry lecturer and he'd like to speak to some design students. So I said, great. So I met a guy, his name is Dr. Peter Childs. And he asked me a question no one had asked before. He said, what happens to all these products when they come to end the life? Mm. Are they recycled? All these materials. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're not, are they? So, so I changed from a student who was, a little, I was doing well. I mean, I was getting good grades, but I wasn't really in it. Mm. And so I spent my summer holidays that year traveling around Ireland, obsessed with these questions that he sent me. And I came back to my final year. Instead of doing what I should have been doing, which was a lot of the other modules, I got obsessed with this particular thing. So I ended up the college, hadn't seen it before. I ended up writing a thesis. You were supposed to make something and write about the make. But what did I do instead? I ignored the rules. I wrote this crazy thesis about what we needed to do in terms of recycling recovery materials. And, of course, that became the foundation for me moving forward. No, it was well received, but obviously wasn't what they were particularly looking for. But for me, it was that spark. And I suppose from there, then I've gone on since then. So that was looking at... My dad was in construction, so I'd worked in construction. Mm. My dad is a kid and teenager and then gone in here and started to understand that we are in an issue where our planet's is finite resources. We're not recycling. Look, in the 80s, Connor, I mean, we were throwing away so many computers back then. You wouldn't believe it. Mm. Like, so th- that's a long time ago. People probably think now a lot of the younger people now probably think we didn't even have a computer back then. That was the big issue. Electronic waste was piling up. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I ended up then working in the recycling industry for a while, uh, recovering silver precious metals and stuff, and uh, taking computers apart up in an attic of a factory back in 1989, in the Lofton factory. But, yeah, so I started to kind of really get interested in that. And then that's where it's sort of, I suppose, it's taken off from there. But it's kind of this interest, like, I'd worked construction. My dad didn't like waste. Yeah, just didn't like waste. Look, we he didn't have a whole lot. His clients didn't have a whole lot dad was always trying to save his clients money as well because there were local people who were trying to maybe have a small little house and they wanted to build on a toilet and dad would try and help him get funding for it and he'd do a really good job and he was always going back and doing extra work and stuff you know uh but and he, he had this mentality you didn't throw things away like so i kind of grew up with that and my mm. mom as well and then realized we were throwing away so much stuff and back in 1988 89 i was like mom god so i kind of Didn't decide there and then I went back and did a master's and I started to do design. So I decided to do more about how we design stuff. So I focused on design for manufacturing, assembly Mm. Again, didn't do what the university wants me to do again. I got interested in a different aspect and I kind of wrote up much more of a design led approach to it rather than they wanted me to kind of do like the automation, the robotics. But it just didn't interest me. I can't do stuff. It doesn't interest me. Mm. Couldn't Couldn't ignite my passion. My passion has to be ignited. So, I ended up then from there working, writing, looking at how stuff goes together and how stuff goes apart, and then working in a Japanese company for four years and being the first person to bring in this kind of way of thinking into the Japanese company. So, I sort of bought in this idea that eco design, recycling, design for environment, there were terms that were emerging across the planet at that stage, you know, um, and we were like, I was, it was a, global Japanese company we had bases in America obviously Japan Ireland and other places as well so I started pushing for recyclability uh, product design for assembly and all that kind of stuff and during that time we sort of began to lead the way in certain terms of product stuff and I suppose I got so far I was moving up within the company I had a great relationship with all the senior people and I said okay I need to go now and I decided I had to basically become an expert in the field I wanted to be the person who knew everything about the subject and -hmm. the only way I could do that was I felt a lot by staying in the industry because they were pulling me into senior positions and it wouldn't it wasn't what I wanted to do and I wanted to basically so I I decided to move to the UK still at the time I suppose anything like you know I got rid of a car you know I, I haven't really owned cars as much since then sold my car which I needed for going to work and Saved up, packed up all my stuff and I went to the UK and I started in that autumn, a self-funded PhD, which I didn't, I funded for five years part-time. And I basically uh, looked at systems, Mm. design, life cycles, material flows and the role of different actors. And my my PhD, I was awarded a PhD five years later and in parallel I also set up the first, uh, some of the first programs ever at university for for, uh, for students in the field. And also I became one of the first ever lecturers globally to give in the title of an eco design lecture, and also did commercial work with a lot of different clients to fund myself. So exciting times for me. I was working with students. They were coming out with the skills. But this is back in the 90s. This sounds like a story I tell you. you know, it sounds like a story of the last few years. I'm hearing these stories now from from people working and they think it's amazing students are now getting interest in the field. So I was in this back in the 90s. But uh, again, because I'm a a
0: pioneer. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's definitely a pioneer. Like there was a group. And look, I was part of a pioneering group of researchers really in the UK and globally. We set up a group. I didn't set it up, I joined it, called Eco2. I joined it quite early on. So they're set up in 94, 95, and I joined it when I moved to UK in 95. And there, mm. was, there was people like me. Well, actually, everyone was different. A lot of them were far more academic. Uh, they weren't coming from industry, but I came from industry, and I came from a very practical background. But we were all interested in what can you do in terms of resources design. Yeah, so we were up on by no, st- absolutely. And um, so, but of course, for me, what happened was, I wanted to put the students first. Uh, I must say the university and I had a lot of clashes. So eventually I left. Even though I could have stayed on as a lecturer, I, I walked out the door and started fresh again in zero zero. And that was wh- where I kind of decided I didn't want to become an academic. I mean, I published loads already. I still have published lots of stuff. I just I just can't see the point. I will publish stuff at Times Academia because sometimes people want me to get involved with stuff. But um, mm. I found like... Like, I probably published, for a self-funded PhD, I probably published more than most people. But, like, no one's reading the publications. And, and I was like, why would I waste my time spending weeks and weeks and weeks writing a publication no one's going to write? And I, I, I'm not doing it for my ego. I don't care how many publications mm. I have. I want to make change happen. So I decided to we'll let my PhD, and uh, no one would hire me now. Who's going to hire someone who was coming out? The skills I had in the world back in 2000, so no one was interested, which was good, because actually what happened was I got a few jobs to kind of do like small little projects and I'd set up my own consultancy kind of in parallel but then I suppose after doing this about a year's work of working with different people uh, the government took me on as a kind of experiment so it was the in the UK at the time it was the Welsh government and they took on me on they see seen me speak they saw my passion they knew I had a practical background and the idea for me was to go in and help businesses so to help businesses that thinking about sustainability, about systems, about materials. So that's 20 mm. years ago or 22 years ago, I started there. And I am in there, you know, I'm a normal job, government advisor. But again, I kind of took a totally different approach to everyone else. So, when before I got the job, some of the professors, because it was linked with the university, linked with the government, they didn't want to hire me because they, they saw me being a bit, I think difficult. And, um, so they said a the challenge. I'll give you an idea home. Like, so they said to me, there's no way you're going to make targets of 150 companies a year. So what did I do? In my first year I made, I think the first year was 300 or 450 and the following year, something like similar as well. So basically I made enough targets for the whole organization in my first couple of years and said like, no, you know, that's kind of like, well, I'm going to show you, I can do this. Why do
0: you think they didn't think the 150 number was achievable?
1: Uh, I think they just thought I was I just know they didn't trust me I'd come from a different institution I suppose I was outspoken and I I just think that um they totally underestimated that I was very very driven and mm. I wanted to change things so I ended up sort of basically doing their targets doing the day work but also having a second job in parallel and my second job was I wanted to change the world and I wasn't going to do it by working directly with companies so in parallel I started uh, putting together proposals, lobbying government people. I visited every department in the government, right? Every department. In and Wales. Because I was, yeah. And I also started linking the UK as well, but initially in Wales. And Now, I was a government advisor, so I, I it was easier for me to open some of the doors. But literally, I met with everyone from like education, health, you know, uh, economy, transport, you name it. And I basically went to everyone and said, I've got a vision. This is what we what we can do in Wales. And I kept doing this in parallel, writing proposals. And by within two or three years, all the government people started to take notice. And eventually we started to have meetings. And eventually they gave me 26,000 sterling. And that was back in 2004. And that was for me to do some more research into this vision I was trying to set out. Because basically what I was trying to do at the time was I wanted Wales to take the opportunity to be the first country in the world to lead on eco-design, to become a nation that really invests on sustainable design. Mm. So that 26,000 led to another, probably 44, another 44. And eventually within a year, they said, they're going to back me fully. So I got three quarts of a million from the government back in 2006. I set up my own organisation uh, to... Um, basically deliver on this vision and then set up a stakeholder group to work with them and hire a team of people. And over the next seven years, we we became, yeah, we were in the top five globally for work. We were recognized, we're still recognized by a lot of, so a lot of, um, we were named by loads of governments in the top five in the world. I became an advisor to UN, the European Commission, and we started, we took a program of capacity building. So go back to community, and my idea was build capacity. The mm. idea was, if you're my client, and, and as is an organization, we were called the Eco Design Center. If we went into you and you're our client, my objective was to get you to stop hiring us as soon as possible. Not that we would piss you off, mm. but we would give you what you needed, the skills, the knowledge, the tools, that you wouldn't have to come back to us. And if you came back to us, it's because you want to innovate at a different level. Mm. You want to go much further. I didn't want to come back for the same projects over over again. All our competitors were taking a totally different strategy. So we started to win business with clients that said, you're the first person who's come to us with that type of approach because everyone else wants to create a dependency. My mm. idea, again, is very idealistic. So I saw like, like, like there's great results behind our idealism, but I do realize it's very idealistic. But my idea was that, yeah, if we can build capacity, build competencies, build skills, people can do it for themselves, give a man a fish, you know, you know what saying. Mm. Can get them through themselves. I can then focus my energy and efforts on my team on the next client. On the next client, so we started doing like major kind of demonstration projects, working with groups of companies, groups of universities, changing how they taught, changing how the companies design products. We did, we became the first organization at the time to be officially a member of the government policy teams and never had done that before. And like, and back then, like, I was like, I was like, kind of punky, so I like spiked hair, long beards, like, I was like dressing alternative so they're bringing this this person into this meeting with suits to all these people and I was the only one standing out and it was all about it was passion enthusiasm but also it was based in knowledge and and results and I suppose I did that for seven years and then in 2013 when we were I suppose the height of success we had like projects all over the world I made a decision to uh, walk out the door.
0: What was the decision based on?
1: Um, I felt I needed to, again, I needed a new approach. I just needed something new. Like this was working, it was doing okay, but I was frustrated. I just wanted to do more and I wanted my, I wanted to, see what happened was, it started off, I was doing a lot of the work directly with the clients and stuff, but obviously as the business grew, I mean, we were only eight or 10 people, but like, as it grew, like we were collaborating more and more people, like there was all I was always being called to senior meetings. I was always been asked to go to speak to people. So I was traveling a lot, which was great for a while. And don't get me mm. wrong. I uh, was talking at events, always sitting in board meetings, steering meetings, blah, blah. And I was kind of losing interest in, if you like, in my in my passion. But mm. also because we were so successful, uh, we would we started out like as a kind of spin off from a university with government funding. But then as we grew the university, um, just kind of wanted to, we agreed from the outset that we pay 20% of everything we, we make to the university. And for that service, they would give us uh, kind of HR, uh, the kind of, I suppose, maybe a bit of immense small bits, but not much. But it was really kind of, I suppose, it was a stamp for any of our clients to say that we have a university behind us if we ever needed it. Now, mm. we never really used it. We gave them 20% for years and years. But then they started to take more and they started to take more. And they started to make it more difficult for us to recruit people. And it started to make it more difficult for me to to develop new projects. So my hands were being tied more because basically what they wanted to do was they wanted us to come back on campus. They wanted us to go on campus and become part of the an institute. And I was never going to do that. So so for me, I suppose I was to a certain extent you're kind of pushed into decision, but also I was also I was getting a bit like just disillusioned, really. I suppose I'd set out, I'd left Ireland in ninety five, but it's kind of I wanted to become this expert. I'd done my PhD. I'd worked with all these kind of companies, done the kind of advisory services for some years, met 100 companies, supported them on a startup basis, then set up the center, which became like in the top five globally, mm. who was like basically, we, we had no problem in the world attracting people to us. Like it was, everyone wanted to work with us one stage. And uh, and then for me, it was just like, oh, if this, is this it? <laughs> is this it? Like, our resource crisis was getting worse. Our climate crisis was getting worse. All the things, our biodiversity crisis were getting worse. All the things that I set out to change the world and were getting worse. Now, we were getting the results. And like we won, at you know, just before I left, actually, I went to Brussels to the European Parliament to pick up, I didn't know at the time, but I picked up this uh, World Green Design Award uh, for a for work in terms of the model I'd set up and stuff. So it was a nice way to leave. But mm. I just had to get out. I felt like I was becoming, I'd become a workaholic too be honest, I was a serious workaholic at this stage. And uh, now I get obsessed about stuff. But at this stage, I was just all the time. I never took a salary increase. And all the time. Uh, You know, I just, I think it was, it was I was just, I suppose, I was insanely trying to change the world, building my teams, uh, putting a lot of time into my teams, a lot of time to my clients, but maybe not enough time into myself either, you know? And I think from... I realised, probably from a mental health point of view too, I just needed to look, take a step back. I'd achieved what I set out to achieve in many ways. I mean, we had done a lot of really good stuff, but globally, the issues were getting worse, and mm-hmm. I really felt like if I stepped out, took a year out. So literally, when I when I left, I literally contacted every client. I had loads of kind of international roles. I contacted all my international roles, and I said, everyone, I'm stepping out for. A while. And people were like, all right, okay. What's really interesting when you do that, you know, I didn't say I'm stepping out forever. I said I'm stepping out for like you know a year or so. Mm. I lost I lost all of those contact contacts instantly. That was I was I was dead in the field after that. I I didn't expect that. It was good though, but no one ever contacted me anymore. So you go from this kind of like innovator in the space to suddenly no one wants to know you. And, and I, think I think it that, might
0: be you're you're not you're not you're now not useful. That's it. Oh, totally. No utility.
1: That's oh, totally. Totally. Because when I was there, I was kind mm. of like, we were working with like institutes. Like, I mean, you may not know them, but they're off for Institute in Germany. They're big, like, researchers. I mean, they're, they're massive, right? They wanted to work with us all the time. Like, we were seven or eight people in an office in Cardiff. And this institute, which is massive, multi, multi, wants to work with you. We had all these big players globally wanted to work with us, you know, to be associated with us, to be associated with what I was doing and stuff on my team. And I think, but it was great for me because you know, I walked out the door, right? And it was hard to say goodbye to my team because you build teams. I suppose that was probably my second or third build a team. So I was very close to them. Mm. And um, like I walked out and um, the following year, I literally um, basically just meditated and I grew all my own food. I was already into growing food. Uh, cooking, I basically learned cookery skills from globally. I became this crazy obsessed cook. Everyone had to come all the time for because I was cooking all all the time. Like I literally would be cooking all day every day. Like I got uh, that's the kind of person I am. But I I became a really good cook. Meditating all the time. I started performing my poetry, which I've been writing for years, and. Uh, Started doing a lot of stuff like making like gar- like sheds down the allotments and just so it, out. It,
0: it's a it's a complete lifestyle adjustment lifestyle change.
1: Oh, it was it was it was it was a It was kind of stuff I was doing anyway, but no, it was like I, this all I'm doing full time. And it was just amazing, like. And so for that year, I needed. I didn't realize for the first few months I needed to break my health was like I didn't mm. realize you stop. You're going 100 miles an hour. Like you can see mm. the way I talk. That's the way I am when I'm working. 100 miles an hour for so long and you stop and you stop and the phone stops ringing and you stop ringing the phone i had hundreds of emails every day back in the prime hundreds and hundreds of emails i was the kind of person if you email me connor i'd make sure i got back to you that night even though i'd stay up late to do it you know because if you needed something i was i wasn't going to let you down because my dad mom instilled that kind of mentality so i just walk ethic which was too much, really looking back on it. Like, because I, you know, he was like, literally, I won't let Connor down, so I'll get back to you. So, so literally, um, stopping everything was amazing. And then, just like at the end of all that, um, I suppose, um, on a personal basis, uh, the following January, uh, out of the blue, right? And I won't go on about this too much. My wife announced that she was leaving out of the blue. So, I'd gone through this work stuff. Mm. Uh, uh, and everything was grand in the marriage, and it seems to be. It was only the last few months, she said, like in hindsight, but that was grand. So I'd kind of gone from this kind of career guy to this chilled out guy who'd be home all the time cooking and all this kind of stuff. And then, like, January, she said she'd met someone else and she was leaving just like that. So, like, my life had been turned upside down by leaving this career I'd built in an innovative space, like, being recognised globally for it, to suddenly be going, oh, okay, our family home, everything, and I'm now, and also, like I said, I wasn't really working. I was doing the odd job, but I literally was just kind of uh, trying to find. I was writing a lot and all that kind of stuff. And um, so, yeah, so that was amazing. Because when she said she was leaving, what I did was um, talked about it during the day. She announced in the morning, and I test. I messaged her during the day. Said, look, don't worry, come back this evening. We'll have a chat. And I gave her a big hug and said, look, it's going to be okay. I wish you the best. You know. And um, Frank, do you
0: think there was a correlation between your life choice, that massive lifestyle change and marriage breakup?
1: Yeah, possibly, possibly. I think uh, looking back, um, my ex Sally, I think she was probably climbing. She was beginning getting more into career and I was probably getting a bit more like she was getting more into it. So she Mm. was in university and she was doing some really good work. And she's a lovely person. And I think she was getting more into that. And I was getting more critical. Mm. I was getting more critical of the institutes. I was seeing where their failings were. And I think that definitely wouldn't have helped. And so she sort of, so yeah, maybe, but look, it worked out amazing because the best thing I ever did was to accept it straight away. Most people, like my friends, they hang on to these things for years and they're miserable. I just Mm. accepted it. Of course it was tough. It was tough and hard too. Like we had a brilliant time together when we were together. Like we were together for, I don't know, 15, 16 or so. We had a great time. Mm. So I said like, and like I think for her too she wasn't expecting that it was good for her it was good for me and as it happened I wouldn't have met my new partner Jude if I didn't have that attitude and so like so now I have an amazing life with Jude but it just shows that like I suppose it's how you approach things I'm the kind of person I suppose who I do take things personally and I do get very emotional I could say my my dad was the same but also I accept that things change
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know I accept that Life goes on and it's how you make the most of it. And that kind of person goes, well, look, you know, yeah, I'm a fighter, I suppose. Like i mean Jude, my partner, she said, I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter in terms of like, you get one chance in life, Connor, one chance. And you you have to grab it. And I know it's, we have hard days and I have hard days, same as you. Everyone's got tough days. But also, I'm so privileged. And I knew that time when my marriage broke up that I still had the privilege. Yes, it was hard to go through a breakup. Actually, my dog, who was my baby, he died a few months later, and that was much harder, to be honest, much harder. And then to sell the house and get rid of all my possessions, which was my choice, I decided, look, fresh start. We mm-hmm. said, reduce everything down to the box. But that was all kind of, you know, I suppose it makes you stronger. And I suppose during that time, I wrote a lot. I performed a lot of poetry, a lot of very personal stuff, um, which shocked a lot of the audiences. But... It was a way for me to get my emotions out onto the public domain, so I could then move on and focus mm. on the next thing, you know. And the next thing, as I said, like Jude, my partner now, Jude Cherry, um, and we, she was working with me. She was uh, operations manager for my previous organization, so we'd known each other anyway. And when we got together, we didn't expect it because we were collaborating on some projects, and we ended up getting together over time. And it's it's been amazing because she's just been amazing, and it's been just this like. It's amazing timing for both of us because we just—it's like it was meant to happen. We've come together. We're both a similar type, driven passion for justice, equality, sustainability. We both look at the world totally differently at the same time. So, so I'm on the ADHD side. She's more like on the autistic side. So we have very different ways of. So we'll mm. often chat to each other and not really understand what the person's saying, really. And that's been a big learning curve for us over the last number of years is trying to understand each other. But together we've ended up doing some of the best work of our life. You know, that's the thing, you know, and that's uh, the beauty. Like we have a brilliant relationship on a personal level, but we also work together. And I suppose. I think, yeah, it's timing at times, you know,
0: Frank, does um, does dereliction affect you personally and emotionally?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, so Jude and I moved. From, uh, we moved the time from from to the UK to the Netherlands and then we came back to Cork and Ireland in late 2018 and Mm. so we came back with a very we both have similar resources product urban environments and we came back to Cork with this idea that we would take what we were we were innovating in Amsterdam we were trying out new business models so Mm. we came back to Ireland looking at circular cities and business models so businesses that operate within like a 5k radius and stuff so all resources when the city that wasted are reused back and so we developed really interesting stuff Jude and I came back here with this idea we come to Cork try these things out in Ireland. We moved back mostly because of family, we both wanted to be close to our parents and stuff, you know, and that particular time where, the, where they were and stuff. And so, we didn't expect to end up on dereliction. But when we came back here and saw the dereliction and the vacancy, the King heritage, the housing crisis, the homeless crisis, the catalogue of stuff was going on. We got so emotionally involved very early on, you know, and we sort of I suppose we always walk urban environments. We always take pictures. So when we travel together, we we normally slow travel, usually ferries and trains if possible. And we do a lot of urban exploring. We take photographs, we map things out. And we do this very simple model called rest, play, work. Rest, everyone should have a home. Play, adults and kids should have access to creative play spaces. And work, just meaningful work. So we were applying this kind of framework in Cork. But what we were seeing instantly that it was no point in focusing on the work element, which is what we thought we do. We really need to mm-hmm. focus on the rest and the play. There was a serious lack of of homes and there was a serious lack of creative spaces as well. But yet we were surrounded by this epidemic of vacancy dereliction. It affects your mental health. It affects your community. It affects the economy. It affects tourism. But most of all, it stops people being traumatised if they have a home. A home is a fundamental basis for any of us. I grew up with a home with a roof over my head and a family that allowed me to become the person I am. And I'm seeing people, we were seeing people at the time, we were seeing kids go to school, we're we're not too far from a school here, we were seeing kids go to school every day, coming from a temporary accommodation, coming from somewhere where they couldn't have their own food in their rooms and stuff, and then arriving at school, and the school fair play was trying to do their best for them. But they were passing derelict houses on the way. Where Mm -hmm. we live here, on the bottom of our street, there's two derelict houses, there's another vacant house next to us and there's another one just across the road up a small bit so yeah no so it affects us it really it was something that like so we did 18 months of research initially again equally uh, jude was doing some other projects at the time mostly i was doing some as well but i had a bit more time so i jumped into the whole thing so the next 18 months i immersed myself in ireland the culture society read as many papers websites as possible but particularly focused on housing homeless, all this stuff and what I realised with Jude as we went through it was dereliction was an area that wasn't just no one was talking about, and it was normalised. We chatted to people, and they go, "Oh, that's the way things are, Frank. Just can't do anything about that." And it's like, okay, that's like a was it a rag to bull, or whatever. To me, is like, of course we can. I hate that. Of course we can do something about it. Well, so, it
0: wouldn't uh, be tolerated in. Amsterdam. It wouldn't I'm be not tolerated in Berlin. I, I spent a lot of time in Berlin. It just isn't for some reason there is something in the Irish consciousness that seems to tolerate this stuff.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's it. And and like so that's what we wanted to say. Well, okay, you don't it doesn't have to be this way. So in June 2020, actually, we're just coming up. Actually, it happened. So this is our third year anniversary of starting the campaign. So it's good good time for chatting too. Um so we started on the 24th of June uh, twenty twenty posted our first tweet and that became the foundation and then every day for a whole year we host a different property in the city within a two kilometer radius of the center mm. this is derelict this is not being used this is a broke down of a social contract with housing crisis so we started bringing in the heritage the housing the homelessness the, the economy the environment the mental health. So Jude and I start introducing a load of conversations through the thread of of every day. And in parallel, uh, Jude's more of a data person than me. I'm the one who sort of, I suppose, does a lot of the kind of public grand provocations stuff. And so she, hmm. in parallel, went through the publicly available data for 340 properties. So we found 700 in two kilometers. Uh, we did a report called This is Derek Darling," which did analyzed the database in 340. And over the year, we shared about 450. So the council at the time, the local authorities were reporting on 95 and they ever had a much wider radius. So, mm. so like literally, that was something that wasn't right. So literally started the trade, started doing the research. And once the media picked up on it, no, we didn't know anyone. We didn't really, we weren't trader experts by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I didn't ever look at the analytics till way later than that. And I didn't realise, because a few months later, quite a few months later, maybe the end of the year, I realised that my Twitter was gone crazy because people weren't liking, they weren't retreating necessarily, but they were all coming. Mm-hmm. And what we realised was all oh, the journalists were coming to my Twitter feed, all the architects, the heritage, the local authorities, they were all viewing. They weren't necessarily reacting, but they were viewing.
0: So Frank, can I ask you, is are you saying up to 700 700- houses within a two kilometer radius of the city center of Cork. Yeah, How broad are we, a radius are we talking about here Mm. for those 700?
1: Yeah. So they're all within two kilometers. So if you take the city center, we were basically around, we'll say in Cork, there's like a, like a well-known market, and we were basically in the city centre called the English Market, and we're in mm. two kilometres, so go two kilometres from each from each of that, or, or the centre island. So in Cork, there's an island, and so each direction go two kilometres. So that's kind of where we kept our research to. So we mm. always kind of, like, beyond that, we didn't think through properties, and we focus on, you know, the idea was for us where we were interested was like a livable city, a 15 minutes, all these terms, but ultimately could like we we came back to ireland we don't have a car we hire a car if we need it we walk and cycle and get trains and buses that's the kind of lifestyle that suits me and Jude. i know it doesn't suit everyone but that's what suits us so we were based on people like us other people we knew abroad who might move back to ireland who would lived away who like urban environments and if they move back they'd probably want to live within a couple of kilometers into city center because they can go in for a few pints they can mm. go in for a meal they don't have to yeah total convenience so we were mm. thinking if you could, if you had seven hundred houses that were that convenient, that's seven hundred families or seven hundred groups of individuals mm. would then be back in the city. What a difference that would make to the local environment, the economy. Mm. You know, if you run a business, they could support it you could, for the schools. You know, you could then have a much better transport system. Uh, so yeah, so that's what we were particularly interested in. Was like, can we turn this around? Can we? If there's that much empty, why are they empty? And so we started looking at the myths behind it. And we started writing reports, and we did like loads of other stuff and policy. And so there has been policy changes, there has been huge cultural changes, and but it's all been around the idea of why are we wasting these things? Like why? But, but, are but,
0: but, we but crazy- why are we, Frank? What is? If somebody owns a building in the city centre in Cork. Why not repurpose it, improve it, rent it out, generate revenue, generate income? You think so? Yeah. What's stopping them?
1: Is it speculation?
0: And and how does that work? Like what is in it for the business or the the property?
1: There's a lot of reasons, but I suppose I'll give you an example for a small terrace house. What we found would go up every year in Cork, £20,000 by doing nothing. So like the value of the property was going up 20,000 every year. So by actually not doing anything, your property value goes up anyway. So for a lot of them, it's easier not to do anything because.
0: But it would not, would it not just go up more 30% if you repurpose it and you're driving the, the ink?
1: Yeah, but they don't have to make any investment at this stage. So they can just let it sit there. A lot of Could them these like be the,
0: inherited properties properties that oh, were inherited oh,
1: there, would be. there is and we would have gone down broke down stats so you'd have a small percentage of fair deal for example which mm. is when someone goes into home there'd be a small few of inherited but there'd be a larger percentage really like what we tended to do no we did a date of a 340 well due to the date of a 340 but what we didn't tend to do was basically um uh get too obsessed about any individual property but mm. but yeah there are individual cases but when you break down the stats probably they're only maybe 10 15 percent of them there's still an awful lot that are just sitting there. Now, like you like said, some are speculation. Some are part of a potential, what I call a dereliction wasteland. So you might have a street or a block, and there might be 50 or 60% of them vacant or derelict. And you can see that's kind of owned by different people who are speculating on the idea of more become vacant and then over time turning into development land. But there's also, like... Like there's also a lack of enforcement. So, for example, if the local authorities, they have a dereliction sites uh, levy thing that they could be enforcing now since 1990. So, for example, mm. if you own a derelict property in Cork City, the council should be on to you, Connor. They should say to you, basically, Connor, your property's derelict. Mm. What are you going to do about it? We'll give you six months or 12 months. And you, OK, if you don't do anything, we're going to fine you. Now the fine was 3%. Now it's 7%. So they could fine you 7% every year of its value. Now that total would,
0: value in a single year.
1: Yeah. So that would be an incentive for you to go, okay, I'm going to get these fines every year. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, I'm making 20000 do nothing based on accumulated value of my property. But if I get the fine, maybe I'm better off to hire the contractor and mm. bring it back into use. Mm. So... But see, the council doesn't enforce the dereliction uh, levies. So they've just refused to do that now for decades. Why? Cultural. I mean, a lot of challenges here are cultural. So, I mean, obviously, the relationship Irish people have with property, going back to John B. the field, all Mm -hmm. that stuff kind of comes up a lot. So it's my property. I can do what I want. There's that feeling. Uh, The council say that they haven't got the staff, it's too complicated. And they kind of take the side a lot of the owners. They say, oh, well, you know, it's too complicated. You know, we can't be putting them under pressure to do that. Whereas if if a council takes a more proactive approach, for example, mm. Limerick were very slow for years. But now Limerick in recent years have started implementing CPOs, where, which are compulsory purchase. So mm. in other words, your house, your properties, Connor, the council says, sorry, Connor, you're not paying the by-election levies. You're leaving decay onto the street. They're a public health issue. They're an eyesore. All the things that go with
0: that. They're a fire hazard.
1: Well, right, I mean, hazard, I mean, the amount of crumbling buildings in Cork City, Connor. it's shocking. Honestly, we've only been back here, not even five years yet.
0: I've been it following was, your Twitter feed for uh, a while now, and it is absolutely shocking.
1: It's shocking, Connor. There was a, a young woman killed in 1999. Her name was Aoife Bell. She came back. She's from Ireland. She came back for Christmas. I'm not sure where she was living. And mm-hmm. she was walking down one of the main streets in Cork and a building fell on top of her. They described the time she was killed like she was like a rag doll, a really upsetting case. That building, that area of town, is still mostly derelict. The amount of buildings, there was a crumbling building a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks before that. This year alone, I mean, because generally now, and I, people message us and we go we out and take pictures because obviously we've got a. I I mean, that's the one thing what we've been doing with a brilliant support from the community. It's been amazing, not just in Cork, across the country. Now that people sharing. All across Ireland, there's groups set up. So there's a real, the community wants to change this. They know that we can do better. And we have seen some success. But if, if a local authority, like in Cork's situation, it's a dereliction of duty. They are, they are not fulfilling the social contract. They are li- literally, like, we joke about it, you and I, right? But well, we're also serious. There's parts of Cork, Connor. you should have a hard hat walking around. It is that bad in places. Now, people will say, oh, it's because it's built in a marsh and they're old buildings. Amsterdam is built in a marsh. Mm. They're old buildings. Mm. They can maintain and look after them. They don't have dereliction. We lived in Amsterdam previously. There wasn't dereliction there. It's just not allowed. Now, they had their challenges in the 70s and 80s. People stood up and said no more. And they kept standing up and saying no more. And eventually the local authorities changed their policies and changed their practices. We could do the same here. Like Cork City... And right, likewise, the towns and cities in Ireland right across the country, beautiful towns. We have heritage architecture here that other countries don't have. We don't realise how beautiful they are. I had to go away to come back with you and for us to go, oh my God, it's much nicer than we realise. Why are we vandalising it? It's criminal behaviour. You know, people are dying in the streets without a home. Dying in the streets without a home. Yet there's hundreds of homes in Cork City. People are living in humane conditions in direct provision. Travelers and their and their sites are getting ridiculous treatment. Yes, we are surrounded by vacancy and dereliction. And I think it's it's criminal, really. It is really criminal. And like Cork City, like yes, it's built in a marsh, but these buildings are not maintained. They're not looked after. I mean, in in uh, the Netherlands, any building pre World War II is considered very precious, and mm-hmm. we look after it. We have buildings in Cork. 200, 250, and 300 years old being left up, like you said, for someone to light to a match them mm. or for someone to, to knock them down? Because going back to what your question was, why is it happening? In Cork, what's quite common, they'll let a lot of buildings rot and decay. They'll mm. remove the slates. They'll remove maybe a window or two. Let the weathering come in. Then over time, they'll decay further and eventually it's going to be a reason for them to knock them down. So where are you losing vital heritage? Now, heritage... Is so important for our well-being, for our mm. sense the place. Where well, we
0: Malcolm from. Gladwell spoke about this, the broken windows concept. Yeah. It's which it is kind of a similar idea. It's the idea that behavior in the community will reflect the architecture in many ways, right? That if yeah. you allow it to go ah. to rack and room, people with antisocial behavior, crime, et cetera, et cetera, will will go up. Um, absolutely. because of it.
1: absolutely, well, t- absolutely. Well, that's that's totally that's totally it.
0: Um, You said something recently um, in in an Irish Times article from September 22, owners leave the properties to the K so they eventually might get permission to have them demolished. Hmm. How prevalent and how ubiquitous is that? Is that something that's really genuinely happening?
1: It's very much happening, Conor. I mean, it's very much happening. I mean... If you know, we, yeah, if you sometime you come to Cork and uh, Jude and I'd be happy to take you for a walk around if you ever, if you're ever down here. And uh, I do, it is very common, like, and it's really disappointing. And there was, there, for example, recently, um, there's a lovely old pub up in Shandon and mm. um, it's called Cahomani's. And because of our walk, Jude and I, we hear all the stories about the community stuff around it, but basically, that was left rot for decades, right. And then they got permission to to convert it to apartments, but they, what they did was they kind of demolished it all by just one facade so the, it's they have the front facade, and they've left the rest of but that's heritage protection according mm. to them so heritage. There's no real value in heritage, and it's common for, like I said, is all around us here, there's so many properties where the slates have been removed, where the tiles have been removed, you know. And then, of course, what happens as well, it's not just that the local authorities won't charge the 7% levy. The local authorities won't even put buildings in Cork where the roof is missing, they won't even put those on the dereliction register. So the first stage is I contact you, Connor, and say, that's your property on, on McCurtain Street, You've owned that, blah blah and you have a conversation, right? Mm. Then I'll say to you, it's going on the direction register by the end of the year if you don't do something about it. You don't do anything, I put it on the register. Then mm. i charge you seven the levy. In Cork, they won't, because the local authorities have said to us, Oh, you know, it's so unfair in Connor. We don't want to be unfair in Connor, like you know, you know, you're being too harsh.
0: So in a small community, there might be social consequences, right? So you've got people working in the Cork County Council. Their neighbour owns that. Yeah. You know, and there's a little bit of, well, I don't want to upset the neighbours type of thing.
1: I think there's that. I think that, you know, in Ireland, we didn't realise, I said, been away for decades. I was away for 23 years and I came back. I forgot how Mm. small Ireland is. Like, it's so small. I mean, Mm. it's a village. I know Ireland is a village. I mean, I suppose that's because I've worked everywhere. We're big places where it's like, you Don't know anyone like mm. I lived in Cardiff for years, I never knew as many people as I already know in Cork. I know you and I have been out there uh, on the campaign, so people know us and they come up to us in the street, and that like people thank us for what we're doing and stuff. So I know we're mm. kind of more visible than maybe I was before, but literally it's a village here. So, yes, everyone knows everyone, and definitely that carries on. Oh, we can do to them, they're a nice family. Or there's a lot of conversations too around, oh. They're, they're, this family's been here for generations and stuff so definitely there's a lot of the old money as well and look you know they've given so much to the city and we can't come down hard them, even though they might own a block of properties in the main part of the city like if you walk like we're living where Blackpool meets Shandon that's where Jude and I live if you mm-hmm. walk from our place through Shandon down onto Shandon Street and into the, kind of the heart of the city that's the historic spine if you go through the historic spine of Cork so it's Shandon it's Shandon Street down onto North Main Street, South Main Street and Barrick Street. It is just one block of dereliction after dereliction. Irish people are people who live in Ireland. When we go to other countries, we go to Paris and we go to Amsterdam and we go all to these places and we seek out the historic cores. We want to drink coffee there. We want to have our meals out and our glasses of wine. We want to take our photographs. In Cork, the historic core has been vandalised by the local authorities and property owners and whoever else for decades. It's embarrassing. Before COVID, friends of us came over from the Netherlands, um, you know, and uh, we took them for a walk, Connor. It was embarrassing. Like, they came over from the Netherlands and we, Jude and I were new to Cork at the time, we said we'd take them for a walk around. We were still getting to know the city ourselves. And they were like, why are you? We were explaining this is the historic quarter and this is the old butter exchange and this is the old warehouses and Dutch style because a lot of Dutch architecture in Cork as it happens and mm. uh, a lot of it being really really destroyed at the moment. And uh, they were like, "Why are you doing this?" Like they were like, and the Dutch are quite like go back to the Dutch are very pragmatic. Like I would say, pragmatism. I didn't really know pragmatism until I went to the Netherlands. Yeah, and and they they are like and they're like they. Like a lot of people go, they're really kind of into sustainability stuff. They are and they aren't. They're actually into making pragmatic decisions. It makes sense for them financially. They don't want to have pollution and they don't want to have traffic everywhere. You know, that's why they walk and cycle a lot and they have good public transport. They want to move around. They know the economy. In the Netherlands, they know the economy works much better if everyone's got a home and we can all get to work easier
0: and get home. They know that. Yeah, Yeah. plus you you have this extraordinary asset. Is what I'm hearing in Cork, right? Um, I don't know Cork. Been down once or twice, and I look forward to going down and and doing a tour. But you not only do you have the heritage piece, Hmm. you have this extraordinary asset that could be repurposed, rebuilt, regenerated. um, Everybody would feel better. What's stopping it? What I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is inaction by local authorities, essentially due to. societal and community issues there is no reason if legislation is in place yeah it demands people acting as if it's not being enforced the only reason conceivable reason for that is the, the council is not being pressurized to enforce there are no consequences if you don't if there's no enforcement and then there's the social that's right
1: that's it that's it it's kind of like the social nurse only. own so yeah definitely culture yeah. so for a big thing for us is being cultural like Because I've got 20 years experience of policy and I was involved in developing policy from the start with the ID in the UK and seeing it develop over four or five years and seeing the policy announced. And then seeing 15 years later, also often the policies I've been involved with aren't enforced. You come back here and go, no, because people go, oh, grand, there's a policy in place for that. It's no good unless it's enforced. And like. So if the dereliction stuff was enforced and compulsory purchase, now Jude and I have developed a toolbox. I mean, other people have as well, but like our toolbox would also include compulsory sales, compulsory rental, a much more proactive approach to meanwhile use. You know, uh, I'd like to look at meanwhile use, not just for, in terms of creative community space, I'd like to look at meanwhile housing. So, which is a kind of a form of squatting. We've also advocated for squatting. So we basically said, there is so many other ways around this. And if you're not going to enforce your election laws, and I think you made a point over Malcolm Gladwell, it's so true. They'll go on about someone throwing a can of empty can on the street, which obviously does frustrate me, but yet a property owner and let his property crumble onto the street and not be fined at all. if you're homeless in Cork, right, and we've been fortunate enough to have really nice conversations with a lot of people who sadly have struggled to get a home, If you go into a shop and steal a bar of chocolate because you're really hungry and it's a 50 pence bar of chocolate, Mm. the law will come down on you, corner and you will get a hard time. You're a property owner with five or six properties or even just two or three or whatever in the city. You can get away with what I would consider criminal behavior. You know, we should not look the mental health alone. Our children, our younger generation should not be walking down streets and seeing this decay into our election, what does it tell them? And if they're coming from a homeless shelter or a temporary accommodation, what does it tell them? So there's a trauma. It does affect you. It does affect your mental health. And actually, the Scottish have done some wonderful research on that. They have shown that there's a huge impact on mental health. And so our heritage, priceless, once those buildings go, we, we can't build them again. No, it's, it's so we're losing, like, where's the win? Where is the win for society and culture with their election? Who's winning here? Mm. Look, the support we've got is amazing, like locally, nationally, internationally. We've actually had like like we've gone out in the countryside and people have come up to us. So I, I was a bit nervous to the countryside, I suppose, in some ways how people react because uh speaking up like we do and stuff and standing up in the crowd. But like we've had all kinds of people of all kinds of ages saying thank you. Thank you for trying to change this. My son, my daughter, my neighbor, they're struggling to get a place, you know, you know, my daughter's had to immigrate, my son so we've all these stories like, and they, and the people I suppose one of the great feedbacks we've had is that people say things like, I, I, I've started to see it, and I can't unsee it anymore. You, you, you've got us to look up. You made us look up, and mm-hmm. now we've looked up all we see is it and like they're also kind of going oh for god's sake why did you do this because it's depressing but they're also saying thank you because we just forgot we just didn't realize it, it, was, normalized. it mm. was normalized it was normalized it was when some of the earlier we had some great support from the media now we've had to contact none of the media they've all come to us but we had the odd now most people would be brilliantly supportive but we've had the odd journalists going kind mm. of what are you doing this for and you know there's nothing wrong at all. This is grand, and this is the way things are. And why are you why are you call? And there's just a few people, and also other people. And particularly in the first six months, we had people contact us, ask us to stop. Or oh, we were shown to sit in a bad light, and we was, you know, what I mean, it was, oh, well done, you've done your bit now, but you know, you know, stop now at this stage. And it's like, well, you know, how can you stop? Like, I mean, I, I, like that. We were very lucky. We met a guy called Jimmy uh, early on. He was without a home, same age as me, actually, uh, early fifties unfortunately self-consensus actually like me he went to a marriage breakup. right mm. I was okay thankfully he wasn't he ended up on the streets he ended up in the tent Jude and I used to meet him a couple of days a week oh my god what a lovely man inspiring attitude was amazing he was such a positive thinker if he could write those books behind me he'd write the most amazing book he was so positive yet he was in such dark condition you know and like from people like him, he he allowed us to understand what it was like from his perspective and for other people. So he would feed us back stories about the homeless shelters and what was happening and how difficult it was for people like him to get back in there and stuff, you know. Mm. So people like that you meet and you go, how can he be so positive and believe that it will get better, you know, and then you meet someone else and go, oh, this is where things are. You're like, hang a second, that guy's struggling in mm. the tent and he's getting up every morning if he's lucky, he can find somewhere, you know, because he was robbed a lot of times and attacked and stuff because that's the thing. A lot of people who are actually living in these conditions, they get a lot of hassle from people, you know?
0: So well they're well, they're vulnerable um and they're easily identifiable,
1: very much so. yeah.
0: So yeah. drunk people who want to act out yeah. can identify them immediately, see they're vulnerable. yeah. and um, I wanted to ask you about the housing crisis, right? So hypothetically speaking, You've worked a lot with government agencies, etc. Say Leo rings you up tomorrow morning, right? And says, Frank, good news. I'm putting you in charge of housing. You've 12 months. Mm. Where would you start?
1: Well, I suppose at the moment we have the surplus for the, you know, from the, from the tax. I mean, we have the money. Okay. So we know we have the money. Mm. We say where we are at the moment. We know we have the money. We have those properties in Cork. And right across the country, it's not just GROC.
0: Mm.
1: So there are the existing properties. We have the, the surplus from the tax. And, you know, we also have shown in the last few months, I mean, the war in Ukraine has been horrendous for people, but we have shown that we can move things pretty quickly. I'll give you an example. Around the corner from where Jude and I live, there's a, an old convent. That's been empty for the section that they're doing up at the moment has been in, empty for I don't know, a long time, decades. They're now doing it up for, for Ukrainians, which I'm delighted. We're delighted, obviously. Mm. But it shows that they could have done that all along for people without a home. They're also building modular homes. So so I would say, look, like, OK. Look, I mean, what would I do? I mean, straight away, I mean, there, there are. They'll say there's challenges about skills and stuff. And of course, some of the, the thinking has to be long term. So I would advocate, obviously, for mix of private and state building. Some of the stuff would be more long term where I think we need a there's a huge lack of skills in Ireland, Connor. I mean, a huge lack. We know it ourselves uh, through the house we bought. We bought a 200 year old house and we're very, very slowly doing it up ourselves. But there isn't the knowledge. So there is that all these gaps to exist. But so if I had that role, definitely I would introduce extra measures initially. Compulsory sales and compulsory rental, meanwhile, use and meanwhile, housing. All these measures I would bring in and quickly. I would get a state company in place and start building for that, working closely with institutions, getting the skills base. If we need to bring in skills from abroad, bring them in from abroad, obviously, as well. But definitely, we need a state company. We need to build up the skills. We need more measures. But also, I would insist on enforcement. So if we, if we enforce the dereliction levies, as it, simple as that, if we start with that straight away, and put the seven percent back on you and everyone else. That would have a huge change straight away. So, like, I suppose for me, if 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 we were to go and make decisions, there is the toolbox of measures we'd want to bring them in straight away. And um, we have shown because people say it's not possible. We have seen the last year it is possible to change things really quickly. They they build the people with the skills for certain aspects, particularly for a more modern uh, building those skills do exist. The more difficult thing is if you're restoring some of the older buildings. Like some of the heritage buildings do need skills like we're finding here. It's very hard to get people with, um, first, no one in our, that we've chat so far understands buildings in terms of breathability. So this is more on the technical side, but like if you have an old building and it's been made with lime and stone and brick, it's got to be breathable and that people don't understand that. So that's an education issue which will take longer to solve. But no, I mean, there are, I would, the first thing There are is,
0: instant measures, there are medium-term, there are long-term. Well, but but 160,000
1: 160, vacant homes. Okay, right. so there's, there's 160,000 vacant. They're not supposed to be derelict. Surely compulsory rental of all of those. Like, if you compulsory rented maybe 50% of those straight away, or even 80, 25%. Mm. Imagine 40,000, Connor. 40,000 homes straight away back on the market now.
0: Well, you, you could have a, the, the home can turn around into a, a, a rental property in three months, three to six yeah, months. Yeah.
1: So, and like people say, oh, it's, see the thing is, there's so, oh, it needs to be certain standards. Like, I mean, okay, Jude and I are not fussy and we are decided to take on doing a lot of this work ourselves. And we're extremely slow because we're working commercially, we're campaigning. So mm-hmm. the house becomes the, the thing you do a day or two here and there. You know, and we've made that decision. But you, we, our house is not a perfect energy house. We're living in a house that was vacant that we bought it. It was kind of semi-derelict, really. You know, what people had been living up to a year earlier. It needs a lot of work. A lot of people I've chatted to who are in situations where they need a home, they'd be more than happy going to go into not-perfect houses and start working themselves. A bit of trust, a bit of responsibility, you know, work with them. And, like, a lot of these people are young young men and young women who actually have a lot more energy. I'm in my 50s. It's much harder in your 50s to keep campaigning, keep commercial work going, and also do up your house. I'm trying. But, but like, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I would have had a lot more energy. And so a lot, so a lot of people would, are willing to go in. This idea the house has to be perfect. No, it doesn't have to be perfect. I'll give you an example. There's a council house at Stone Throat for where Jude and I live. There's a whole lot of them, actually. You can but this one's empty for five years, Connor. It's in a uh, it's in a terrace of three or four houses, which were only probably built twenty twenty five years ago. Five years, Connor, the council have left that empty. That could have been used the whole time.
0: Well, I, I've heard this standards argument before from local authorities from, you know, we have to build and repurpose to certain standards. But it's the irony of it. Look at the state of the dereliction. And they're talking yeah. about standards.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, totally You're kidding
0: me. Like it's it's just. Yeah. It's completely yeah. nonsensical. Oh,
1: totally. It's totally. And I said, our house is not energy, whatever, blah, blah, judenaries. You know, and maybe eventually it will be. Like, we're we're per, we're doing it well, but doing it slowly. So now with the roof and things. so we're getting better. So it's getting mm-hmm. more better. Today. But, like, if we had to do that, we'd have to move out, go for a like, lot. No, I mean, so I know a lot of people move in. Like you said, the standards, it's a good point. Like It's derelict or it's, and there's no oh. one living it. And, and
0: you're talking about standards about yeah, how, how we build. It's crazy.
1: And there's 300 people in the Direct Vision Centre in Cork and Conceal Road where we visited the mm-hmm. weekend who are crammed in together, who like a lot of lovely young men and women who would have the who, who actually. But I was surprised at the weekend. And so was Jude. Everyone we met, right, in Direct Vision was what was actually keeping the local economy going in Cork. They're mm-hmm. all our construction workers. They're all our retail people. They're all the people making the pizza for us for our takeaway. These are all. I didn't realize there was so so a lot of them have skills and construction and things. So they would be delighted to. Here's this vacant slash derelict home. You mm. can move in. Don't expect it to be energy rated star whatever. But we'll work with you. We'll support you. But we'll put a time frame out. We yeah. expect you within eighteen months to have this much done, and within three years. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And we'll support you in the process. We'll we'll provide. Around that, there could be training programs, how to lime your building, how to plaster, how to, you know, put in a tile in your bathroom. All, all those things can happen in parallel. Mm-hmm. But they, they would be willing to take it on, I think. So, yeah, going back to that, like if we've, the data says 160,000 plus vacant. People will argue it's not that blah, blah, blah. That's not holiday homes either. And that's not derelict. That's just vacant. That's mm-hmm. the stats. I like, said, so take 50%, take 25%. Open them up straight away. Get the people in there maybe get a proper contract in place. You know, you're not saying, oh, that's your house. You know, you have to take responsibility. We've seen that in other countries. It's called stewardship. It's one of the things that measures you and I've argued for. More of a stewardship approach. Let people have the house. Let them work on the house. Give them the advice and guidance. But they have a roof over their head. They can start to build a family. They can mm. have, if they want to have kids, they can have kids. They can go to the local school. They can become part of society. And I think, like, again, I was shocked, but so many people I met on the weekend there—they're they're eight or nine years in direct vision.
0: Um, Frank, what what do you think the impact? We have a major problem, certainly up here in Dublin, um, with short-term lodging. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there's a couple of platforms we all know who they are, mm-hmm. um, that are and people are taking you know advantage as they you know in in a, in a capitalist society they have every right to, they take advantage of the short-term lodging. Tourist comes in comes in rents for a few days they're gone and they're making great money how impactful is that short-term lodging on the crisis and is, what would you very, do
1: yeah it's very impactful i think we i would be a lot more stricter on that to be honest i mean when we lived in uh, amsterdam uh the dutch had introduced a much more stricter rules so you could do that but only for certain days you know certain time frames and it was your own home whatever so like i would Definitely. If we weren't, look, it's like this, Connor. if we weren't in the middle of a housing emergency, if we didn't have people struggling in centres or on the streets, yes, you could let that market play out. Mm. But we're not. So I would come much more stricter. And you, a lot of those accommodations you talk about, they're not registered. So a lot of those are doing it without proper registration. So there needs to be a proper registration process for seat to know who's doing this. And then after mm. that, understand, is that. Something that should be allowed for a local area, and I think in many cases, unfortunately, they'll have to cut it back totally because um, you can't have. You could do a
0: zonal thing with it.
1: You could zonal thing. You could. They could do a lot of things, but at the moment, it's just gonna be crazy. I mean, I do You've seen it probably in social media, but a lot of people say there's no place for rent, for example, in such a town. But mm. there's but there's twenty uh, holiday lets for two days, but there's nowhere there's nowhere for a family to move to. So so like. Yeah. It's, look, if if the market was working, it'd be much harder for me to take my kind of perspective. Of course, you could say, Well, look, Frank, it's working. Mm. Everyone's got a home. But look, we all know it's not working. And I think in an emergency, the you need emergency measures. And I think we saw that. It's great that Ireland reacted so well initially to the Ukraine stuff and allowed people to come and provide mm. support that were being traumatized. Mm. Why can't we take that type of approach? With all the other people in Ireland and all the other refugees as well. Let's do it for everyone. Let's take a coordinated approach. We should not, I mean, again, we should not have 160,000 vacant homes. Like, mm. how does that? And people say, oh, they're not in locations people want to move to. Are we saying no one wants to move to Cork City? I know loads of people who love to live, live in Cork City Centre. So if there's 700 in Cork alone, vacant slash derelict, and I've been to, with Jude, we've been to, amazing towns all over the country. We've been to Mallow, Innis, Tralee, you name it. We've tried to go as many places as possible take pictures and chat to people. All the towns and places we visited, bar a couple, there are a few who, who didn't have the levels of vacancy direction. but most places we visited had high numbers. And I think uh, if there is a transport infrastructure in place, people are happy to move to these regions. It's different if you're putting...
0: College economy midway. workers can move anywhere technically in Ireland. Yeah. Anyway, so,
1: yeah. And that's it. And they like, may want to. Like, if this, that's it. And I suppose that's go back to we need to invest in much better urban environments where, like, one of the issues for Cork is not there, there are the vacant homes and the derelict homes, but Cork hasn't done enough to create parks, play spaces, creches, facilities for families. Mm. You know, it's a polluted city. There's no doubt about that. We come up very badly in terms of pollution. So, you know, green spaces. So put all those measures around, bring more people Mm -hmm. into that environment, your city will thrive, and everyone benefits. Whereas at the moment, who benefits from dereliction and who benefits from people on the street? I mean, we all hate walking on the street and seeing people struggling. I mean, you know, and like going back to places like the Dutch, I often think with the the Dutch is that there's, going back to their pragmatic approach, they just don't want to see that. They don't want to walk out the street and see people struggling. It just... It's not what they don't have the headspace for it. They'd much rather see those people with somewhere to live and contributing to the economy.
0: Well, you remember the famous George Bernard Shaw when he was in Parliament in the UK? He was asked about, um, there, were, there was a plan to put toilets into people's houses. Yeah. And um, because there was a sewage problem in London. And he was challenged in Parliament about the cost mm-hmm. of putting all these um, toilets into people's homes. And he made the point, it's not for their benefit, it's for mine. Yeah, yeah. Right. So if you don't want to do it for if you don't want to do it for your neighbor, point. do great it point. for yourself so that you don't have to walk down the, 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 the road and see sewage everywhere. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's about your quality of life as well as that's everybody exactly, else's.
1: And that's I think that's a great point. It really is. You know, like we don't want to walk down the street and see people struggling. We don't hmm. want to walk down the street and see buildings that could collapse. There's a building in the bottom of our street on the neighbouring street. And like it's just like Jude and I are sharing fairly regularly. I'm just waiting for it to collapse. And it's by a bus stop. I don't want to see it collapse. I don't want to see it falling on some kids or some local people.
0: Mm.
1: But, I mean we're expected to collapse. But it's it's no such an angle out.
0: Mm.
1: You know, and you no know, and we've highlighted it to the local authorities and not doing it. So what do we have to wait till that falls down on some you person? And uh, so, yeah, no, that's a brilliant point. That is exactly it. If you can't do it for for them, do it for yourself. And I think that's mm. it. You know, like, like, what, I mean, like I said, I suppose, how do we get to this point? I mean, it's, it's crazy that we've come back, you and I have come back to an Ireland that allowed this to be normalized. And I suppose if we've achieved stuff, one of the things we've achieved is that now people don't accept it and they're more inclined to challenge it and it's become... Part, I suppose, of a national conversation, which is why it's recognized as a movement, that it's basically people are saying it doesn't have to be this way. And I suppose a lot of times, too, I try and share more recently success stories. There are properties turning around and people want to see that, too. Mm-hmm. Of course, they do, because it must be pretty depressing looking at my Twitter feed. You know? Well, I was
0: the last question I was going to ask you, where can people find you? And you know, I've been watching your 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 Twitter. It's not so much depression, it's it's rage that yeah. I, I feel from, yeah. from watching it. Um, and yeah, I think
1: Twitter, Twitter is the best way to contact me and Jude. I mean, it's at Frank underslash O'Connor and at Jude Sherry. It's the best way to contact. It really gets the conversations going. And a lot of people don't like Twitter. think it's too much. See, I'm not really, I'm not too, I kind of like the fact that it's discussions and debates, you know. I like the fact that there's a bit of interaction on Twitter. And um, I think for us, it's been amazing. Twitter has helped us build the community and the community have really been got behind us and supported us and allowed us to engage. Like I said, we haven't had to contact any of the media. They've always come to us. Because there is a story and I suppose what Jude and I have done so well is we've made the light so bright. You know, like we started out, I wanted to, I suppose I walk as well as an artist and stuff, and I wanted to take that artistic approach and say there's a the light. I'm shining on so bright, you cannot ignore me anymore. And I'm going to keep shining that light. And I'm going to keep challenging that, Uncle. You listen, and that was why we started off. It was like, I'm going to keep doing this, and it was tough to keep doing it. And we you're doing it for three years, now, right? But there was times along the way you want to go, you know, you do wonder. But yeah, I think it shows the power of the community, the power of people, and the power that, like, if you want things to change, you just have to believe it, and you can you can make it happen. But we're very grateful to the support we've got and people like yourself who've contacted us and you know sharing our story that's very important for us as well so i appreciate that connor
0: dr frank connor thank you so much keep doing what you're doing thank
1: you connor thank you and keep in touch man
0: i will do